maybe in this second session we should do Hebrew lesson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
is the promise of Jesus that he would build his church, especially saying it, as I said, in the center of idol worshiping. Uh, it was as if Jesus, in the face of Satan, was saying, I rule in this place, and my church would prevail, and even you cannot stop it, and I would bruise you on the head Since then, Jesus has been working in building his church in the four corners of the world, and even in the place where it all started, in Jerusalem. Our God is the God of grace and love, forgiveness, but also he's a God of restoration. As a child and even now, as an adult, I've often wished that I could do, redo things that I have done, or at least undo the consequences. I often wish to take back words that I have said. Mm -hmm. I wish that I had expressed words that I never said it, but it was only my thought, or they remained unspoken. But for better or for worse, such thing is only a fantasy and an imagination that has nothing to do with the reality of life. We must live with the consequences of our thoughts, our words, but also our actions. An ugly and deadly war has been raging ever since God's supreme creatures, Adam and Eve, see that we talked about it earlier. Satan, represented by the serpent, rose up against God, desiring to become at least co-ruler with God, if not to take ownership of everything. He wanted to receive honor and glory just as God and to be worshipped as a supreme being. But since that was impossible to achieve, he tried and continues to try to frustrate it the God plan and to sabotage the promise given in Genesis 3.15 that we spoke about it earlier. We see this in his efforts to destroy the people of Israel and we see it in his attempt to tempt Jesus and to force him to promise alliance to him. But even when Satan used the disciples of Jesus to betray and to denounce him, he still could not frustrate the plan of God. God accomplished his perfect plan of redemption, planned before the creation of the world in a flawless completion. Everything was done according to his plan. And this, my friend, gives us a great hope for our future and the promises that yet are to be fulfilled. Genesis 3.15 promises that God will defeat the seed of the serpent and eventually reverse the curse of sin. He will bring restoration to the fallen world. Interesting enough, Webster's revised and unabridged dictionary defined restoration as such, and I'm quoting, it is the act of restoring or bringing back to a former place, station, or condition, renewal, establishment, as the restoration of a friendship between enemies, the restoration of peace after war. It's interesting how it's so relevant to, to the restoration that we talk about, because we are indeed in a war, uh, 
and also we have made God our enemy. The scripture often uses the word and the ideas of restore and restoration. For example, after King David sinned and he was confronted by Nathan the prophet in Psalm 51 to he prayed, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And later on when Apostle Paul in his first epistle wished to encourage the flock of God, he wrote them in 1 Peter 5 and he said, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is what Jesus indeed did for Peter himself after he denied him three times. Christ is the one who restores us to his atoning work. God's ultimate goal is to restore his fallen creatures to himself. Again, David in Psalm 8 tells us that God has made us just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor and made us ruler over all the works of his hands. God's primary concern is with people far more than with language and land. However, I believe that to restore us, the Jewish people, he paved the way by restoring the Hebrew language and also the promised land. And this, I believe, is a part of the eternal plan of God to bring salvation to the Jewish people. As he clearly writes in Romans 11, 26, all Israel shall be saved. So let us look at the restoration of the language, the land, and later of the people. First of all, the restoration of the language. We know that God is a God of speech. In his endless wisdom, he determined to communicate with us two words. We have become an image society in this day and age, but we have been always a society of language and words for many millennia. Nowadays, when you drive through the streets of any metropolis, we are bombarded with images on billboards, glaring neon lights and giant screens with images that change rapidly before our eyes. Even in our texting nowadays, we often use emojis. <laughs> but from the beginning of creation, God spoke. He created all things out of nothing by the word of his mouth. As early as the first verse of Genesis in the Bible, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, and there was. The same pattern is repeated throughout the rest of the days of the creation. God spoke the world into being. But God was not silent after the creation. And he continues to speak even now. He commands his supreme creatures how he expects them to live, what they are allowed, and what is forbidden. In Genesis 2, 1 and 6, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, after, after Adam and Eve sinned grievously by listening to the words of the serpent, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. God immediately called them, inquiring what they have done and why they are hiding from him. Biblical history is about God 
speaking and acting on behalf of his people. He calls Abraham and Moses by speaking to them. He reveals himself to the people of Israel, to his word. In fact, one factor of his blessing to his people is his communication with them or communicating with them. When God desired to describe his close relationship to Moses, he said this in Exodus 33. He said, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The ultimate in the relationship between the creator and his creation and his, was found in his speaking with them face to face. Again and again, we read how God calls his prophets and speaks to them. He speaks to the people of Israel directly and to the prophets. When he's angry with his people, he communicates that to them, to harsh words. When he's pleased, he also speaks that too. And under the new covenant, God spoke to us through his son, Christ. Jesus himself spoke to us all that the Father has shown him. The apostles heard the Father speaking through the clouds and finally was comforted and encouraged and helped the dispersed disciples after Jesus told them about his upcoming death with the comforting words of his master before his departure. Those that he spoke to them in John 14, 1 and 2, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare right, a place for you? Now, language, we know that it's a blessing and a curse. God spoke with his people. He spoke with them in a language that they could understand. He doesn't speak to us in a language that we cannot comprehend, but in such a way that the simple as well as the educated, young, as well as, as well as old, can understand it. So the means by which God communicates is a language. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of man, of his heart, was only evil continually. God used strong words here to describe the intention of his creation. And as a result, as we talked about it earlier, there was a recreation after the flood. Even though we know that even then, things didn't really improve. And later on in Genesis 11, when we read, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Believe it or not, there was a time in the history when all people spoke just one language. And how easy life must have been back then. Though then again, those of us, those of us who are in the, in the publishing business, working in different languages, and in translation, we would have been jobless if there was just one language. <laughs> but the children of men determined to make a name for themselves by building a tower that would reach to heaven. Because of the evil intent of their heart, God cursed them with the confusion and dispersion and dispersed them all over the known world of the time. In an act of anger and displeasure with man, God confused their one language into many. And after people started to speak in different languages, new phrases were coined, 
And then miscommunication and misunderstanding became the two evils that have caused a great deal of sorrow, anger, and even hatred in our lives. However, since God is a God of shalom and peace and wholeness, he reversed the curse under the new covenant. <clears throat> it was at Pentecost, at the birth of the new covenant church, that people of different languages heard the sermon of Peter in their own language without the need for interpretation. God showed his goodness to man by taking away the confusion of languages and making sure that all people could hear the sermon in their mother tongue with the language of their heart and their head. The people came from all over the Roman Empire who spoke different languages. They heard and they understood the words of Peter. In fact, immediately they asked him, brothers, what shall we do? And on that day, we know that 3,000 people were added to the church. Well, it's interesting that when the law was given to Moses, 3,000 people at Mount Sinai died. So we see the restoration on the reverse of the curse, even with the language. You see that language is not only the means of communication, but it also means of cursing and blessing. And in the case you were not aware of it yet, when we get to heaven, you would speak once again only one language, and it won't be English. <laughs> uh, the influence and the significance of language are evident, particularly in the days of Reformation, and particularly in the work of Martin Luther and the German language. Now, even though I'm very, I have an ambivalent feeling towards Luther, particularly because of his latter writings uh, about the Jewish people, but at the same time, we cannot deny uh, what he has accomplished for the church. Eric Metasas, in 2010 biography of Juan Hoffer, which became, by the way, a New York uh, bestseller, he wrote these words about the influence of Martin Luther, and I'm quoting. He says that Luther's influence cannot be overestimated. His translation of the Bible into German was cataclysmic. Like a medieval Paul Bunyan, Luther, in a single blow, shattered the edifice of European Catholicism and in the bargain created the modern German language, which in turn effectively created the German people. Before Luther's Bible, there was no unified German language. It existed only in a hodgepodge of dialects. It's interesting that what he's saying is that Luther, by creating, uh, kind of renewing the German, modern German language, created also, in a sense, effectively, the German people. So we see again the language and the people in that sense. Here's another example of how God uses language as a means of bringing his blessing and his light to the nations. And it is by translating the Bible into German language, Luther took the Bible from the hands of the proud and the few and made it available to everyone in the German-speaking world. Because back then, uh, everything, the Bible, was in Latin. And as you, and when Stephen quoted those few words in, in Latin, I think most of us 
didn't understand till he translated. It was exactly the same thing for the people back then. They couldn't understand Latin. So God has done something even more amazing, I believe, with the Hebrew language. In fact, the Hebrew language is a modern day phenomenon. And although it's one of the oldest languages in the world, yet for almost two millennia, it was considered a dead language. The scattered Jewish people did not use, quote, quote, the holy language for daily conversation. They were in the diaspora, they were displaced throughout many countries, a condition that allowed them to adapt to the cultures of their adoptive countries. You know, and in order to survive, they needed to speak the languages of the lands in which they live. I assume that Jewish people today that live in, the, in America, most of them probably speak English and not Hebrew. So Hebrew was, but Hebrew was used only in the synagogue for prayer and also for reading of the Hebrew scripture. But since it was considered the holy language in which God has spoken to man, it was not to be used for daily conversation. In fact, it's interesting that even today in modern Hebrew, most of our cursed languages come from Arabic and English. But now we are already trying to add few Hebrew words to that uh, to our dictionary. However, the states of the state of these affairs began to change towards the end of the 18th century with the renewal of the settlement in the promised land. And as Jews slowly started to repopulate the land of their fathers, the need for a common language in which to communicate became evident. Gentleman by the name of Eliezer ben Yehuda, you can later on Google him. Uh, he has a lot of great books. He he was living at the time in Jerusalem, and he's considered the father of the modern world, uh, modern Hebrew language. He was a Lithuanian Jew that came, and he determined that he and his family would speak only Hebrew. But living in a city like Jerusalem, which was many still were uh, Orthodox or religious. It was hard for him to quote-unquote spread the word. So he ended up moving to, uh, to Tel Aviv, and it was there that he slowly renewed the Hebrew language, as many of the Zionist settlers who choose not to continue to use the Yiddish language or other languages, now, they had, now that they had finally arrived home. And thus, Hebrew evolved into a common language of the people and eventually it was declared uh, as the official language of the new state of Israel. And interesting enough, the first Hebrew language school, what we call Ulpan, was opened in Rishon Letzion, which means first to Zion. And that's where up to about a year ago, where our publishing house was in that same city of Rishon Letzion. So soon Hebrew was taught to all new Immigrants and the fact that the alphabet and many of the words were the same as the biblical Hebrew made it somehow easy for them to learn and to use the modern Hebrew. For many of the new words, a parallel in the biblical Hebrew was found, and other words were invented or adopted from similar root words in the biblical Hebrew. And as a result, modern Hebrew is very similar to and yet also different 
from the biblical Hebrew. While an average Israeli can relatively easily read both, he finds it very difficult to understand what he reads in the Bible. It's almost like Shakespeare or the old King James version of the Bible to the English speaker. If we think only about King David and the Psalms and many of the Psalms, we're talking about 3,000 years ago. So we can see how difficult that trans translation has been or that transition has been. And that's one of the reasons that in Hagefen Publishing, for almost more than a decade, we were in translating the Old Testament into a modern Hebrew. And that's the only, at the moment, the only modern Hebrew of the Old Testament that's available because more, all of us, we use the Masoretic text. So now the average Israeli cannot only read the Old Testament in its original language, but also understand what it's reading. So by restoring the Hebrew language, God paved the way for the restoration of the Jewish people. However, the language was only the first phase of that restoration. The next phase was the restoration of the land. We know that land plays an important role in today's media and in the politics, obviously, of the Middle East. There are those who believe that if a solution were to be found to the Israeli and Palestinian issue of the land, that the regional conflict would be resolved. I personally, by the way, don't believe that that's really the case. Nevertheless, it's an arguable that the land is significant in our region, particularly as it is as scarce as it is in New York or Hong Kong, I mean the land. And the Russian invasion and, or the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine is mainly, not only, but it's mainly for gaining more land and expanding the Russian borders. But we also need to look beyond the politics, as fascinating as they may be, to search what the scriptures have to say about the land and its relation to the people of Israel. Much has been said and written on the subject in the wider Christian uh, community and by those of various theological uh, persuasion whom they all thought that they based their arguments on the scriptures and yet each of them arrived and will continue to arrive to different conclusions. For both biblical history and extra biblical history, we can learn much about the land in general and the land of Israel in particular. One fact that we can certainly observe is that throughout the past five millennia, the land of Israel has gone through many changes. Too many world powers have fought for it, claimed it as theirs, lived in it, but also brought it down to ashes. However, in our short time, we want to look at the land from the perspective of God and the restoration of the land in order to bring redemption to his people, even though other land issues may be as fascinating as this one. From the very beginning of time, when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in a very specific place, beautiful land. This choice territory was described by four specifically named rivers that flew to the Garden of Eden, which was fulfilled with all kinds of wonderful trees, including the Tree of Life. 
But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he made garments of skin as we saw, and he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. A foreshadow of a much larger exile to come. And yet, interesting enough, blood had to be shed in order to provide those garments of skin to replace the figure. And this is how God acts, full of grace towards fallen man, but also looking towards his future and the act of restoration. And as we move forward to the history, we see again the land playing a major role in God's call to Abraham. In the very first sentence of God's call to Abraham, we, we read, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The call of Abraham, as we said, was the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel. It was tied to a particular place in the world, a specific land with well-defined borders. This is the land that later on was described as flowing with milk and honey. That is to say, a fertile farmland abundant with agriculture produce. Today, some people wish that it was a land flowing with oil and gas. <laughs> <laughs> but since God wants the best for his creatures and his people, we see the promised land, the same thing in the same way as it was the Garden of Eden, a choice piece of, uh, of territory. Here too, God was the one who chose the prime property, placing his people there. He was the one to conquer the promised land with little effort on the part of the people of Israel, as we saw in the fall of Jericho. The land was a sign of God's blessing on his people, and that's why it was a good land, as God described it such to Moses when he called him from the burning bush. As we saw in the book of Joshua, the land was conquered and later divided between the tribes. However, when God's people did not follow the ordinances and the laws of God, the land was taken away and they were driven out. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were also exiled from the Garden of Eden. Likewise, the people of Israel were exiled from their land after centuries of continuous disobedience to the command of God. Their land was taken away from them and given to others. The significance of land is seen not only to Adam and Abraham and the people of Israel, but also to God himself, who chose an earthly dwelling for himself. In 1 Kings 11, 36, we read, Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a, have a land before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And when we come to the book of Revelation, the final book of scripture, we read the words of the angel to Philadelphia, to the church in Philadelphia. And he says, the one who conquers will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We know that 
our Lord came down from heaven, lived in the land of Israel, and was crucified in the city that carried the name of God, the city of Jerusalem. So the concept of land has always been in its connection to a person or a people. What gives land its value is the people who live in it and what they make of it. And if you like it, different parts of the world, I heard here, you have uh, not very far from here, the Walmart land, I would call it now. <laughs> um, and what makes it uh, a prime piece of property is because of the people who are there. Because that property doesn't, it's not different than any other place. Uh, not long ago, I was in, uh, in Los Angeles, and there uh, the prime area is, is Beverly Hills, uh, which is the more expensive and prestigious neighborhood. And uh, I learned that most of the residents there are, play, are people who act and play for their living. In other words, people of sport and people of uh, Hollywood. So the people who live there are the ones who act and play, and they get most of the salary. So if you were looking for a job that pays a lot, those are the two. Uh, biblically speaking, Land in and of itself doesn't have any value. Certainly nothing spiritual value except when it's concerned with the people that live in it. So the reference to land is connected always to the people in a manner so interwoven that at times it's hard to distinguish between the land and the people who live in it. The Old Testament prophet spoke to the people and the land often as one. Penalties for the sin of the people included the desolation of the land, like in Leviticus 26-33 and Jeremiah 44. On the other hand, when the people of Israel disobeyed the Lord and walked according, uh, and didn't walk according to his ordinances, uh, and walked according, sorry, according to his ordinances, the land was fruitful, as we read in Deuteronomy. Joy, we read about in Joy chapter 2, verse 21, and pain in Micah 1, 9, were attributed to the land. And tomorrow when we talk about Hosea, we see how much the land and the people were connected together. Again and again, we see that the land is inseparable from the people who live in it. The identity of the two is closely knitted together. And it is interesting to know how the English language actually picked up on this point as the same word is used to refer to the people of Israel but also to the land of Israel. While the word Israel refers to both the people and the land, whereas for other nations it uses different words. So for instance, we have the land of Finland but we have the Finnish people. We have Turkey but the Turkish people, but not with Israel. So, interesting. When God allowed the people of Israel to return to the promised land after the declaration of Cyrus, the Persian king, they returned to the same place from which they had been exiled and driven out. The return to the land was actually a restoration and a blessing as it had the aroma of the forgiveness of their sins and God's favor towards his people once again. And the connection that God made between the people of, and the land affected the relationship of the people of Israel to the land as well. 
in exile, far from their homeland, they were miserable. You can almost hear it in their voices in Psalm 137, verse 1. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Like a newborn baby who is connected to his mother's umbilical cord, they were connected to the land. Even today, in every Jewish wedding, you will hear the famous words from Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6. And it says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. The destiny of the people of Israel was and it still is tied to the land of Israel. And yet, God's main interest was and is in the people and not in the piece of real estate, no matter how valuable it may be. Just as Jesus said that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath in Mark 2, 27, so the same principle, I believe, can be related to the land. Man was not created so that the land can be occupied. But rather, the land was created and given to men in order to fulfill their call and their role. The land was never an end in and of itself, but a means to achieve a much higher goal. The other important thing to note about the land was that its location was chosen by God. Adam did not choose where they would live, but rather God, the Creator, placed them in that garden. When God called Abraham, as we saw earlier again, He didn't give him the option of choosing where to go and where to live, but rather to go to a place that He would show him. Later it was God who conquered the land for the people, crossing the Jordan where the Lord made the waters to stand once again, and flowing the fall, which followed, of course, the fall of the walls of Jericho, and opening the land for them to occupy. The land was given as a gift to Israel because of God's faithfulness to his covenant with them, despite, again, the unfaithfulness of the people as seen time and time again, beginning with the worshiping of the golden calf. And yet God gave them the land that he has promised to them, even though it was undeserved. For centuries, despite the sins of the people and the lack of repentance, God kept them in their land. And again, this is part and parcel with the same pattern that we saw earlier. Now as we move forward to the history, to the days of the New Testament, it seems that the land comes to occupy a less central role in relation to Israel. In the New Testament, we find the, find the fulfillment of many of the promises given to the people of Israel in Christ as we move from shadow to substance, as Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 2. Ultimately, the fulfillment and the substance is Christ, for he is the fulfillment of all in all. Under the new covenant that has been promised by the prophets to the people of Israel, 
we also notice an expansion. We see the inclusion of the Gentiles as co-heirs to God's promises. Two worshippers of God now do not need to be in Jerusalem, but they can worship him in spirit and truth in any place. Even here, by the way, in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> so in, a set, in, in this sense Good alone, the land has extended, making the whole earth the place of worship of God of Israel. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, he declares, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The coming of the Messiah who was born in the promised land ushered in salvation to the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. And that is the ultimate goal of God in history from the very beginning, to save a people for himself, every nation and tribe and language and also people. According to God's plan of salvation for the world, the Gentiles have been grafted into the natural tree as Paul so eloquently lays before our eyes in Romans 19 and 11. And we will look at that in our last, in the last session. God brought about a partial blindness on Israel until the full number of Gentiles will come in, and then, or in this way, all Israel will be saved. This expansion by no means detracts from the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Paul emphasizes clearly that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And this expansion is part and parcel with God's redemptive plan of salvation for all the people. And the importance of the land can be seen not only in the fact that Christ was born and ministered in the same land, but from that same land that he was taken up and to it he shall return to rule and to judge the whole world. Now the ultimate land, why land has important place in history and even in our lives today, those of us who belong to God, we set our eyes on a heavenly land, not an earthly one. Abraham, the first patriarch, had relatively little knowledge of God's plan of salvation because of the time in which he lived in. And yet, by faith, he was looking forward to a city that has a foundation and was designer and builder is God. Our lives in this world, thankfully, is limited. And while we do have physical needs, including a place to live, this shouldn't be our main concern. Our concern should be for our eternal destiny. As we saw already, Jesus so graciously comforted his, people, his disciples before his death and resurrection. Them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. He has gone to prepare a place for us in his Father's home, in the ultimate land, which is the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Until then, we shall seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, including the land, 
will be added. In, the, in his sovereignty, God restored the people of Israel to the land in 1948, after almost 2,000 years. And why there has always been a remnant of the Jewish people and people of Israel who have lived in the land, yet it was only when God allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland, the land of Israel, that in a sense, the church was kind of resurrected. It was in the land and in our days that the gospel went out again and is continuing to go out to the Jewish people. The church was reestablished and restored among the Jewish people. And as the gospel is being preached once again, and in one main common language, and in a tiny little land, we see that people are coming back to the Messiah. So I believe that the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 was part of God's redemptive plan. And the restoration of the language before that, those two paved the way for the restoration of the people. Before conclusion, I just want to give you an example of our publishing. A few years ago, our accountant, uh, she was an Argentinian Jew. Uh, our office manager, uh, he was a Romanian man. Uh, we had two ladies, both our graphic artists and, uh, and one of the translators. They were from Georgia, not the state of Georgia here, but the country of uh, Georgia. And uh, another lady, she was an Iraqi Jew. Now, if you think about it, uh, 80, 90 years ago, to reach out to these Jewish people who needed to hear all of these lands and speak all of these lands. But now, God, in his sovereignty, allowed Jewish people from all over the world to come in one small piece of land, speak one language, even though sometimes in funny accents. But nevertheless, when we are publishing a book in Hebrew, it can reach out to these Jewish people all over the tiny land of Israel. The last uh, thing that I want to mention again before the conclusion, I hope you're not too hungry. <laughs> uh, when our, our both daughters, when they served in the military, they both served in the education unit, uh, in education group. I think the Israeli army is the only probably military that has a large education course. But in that, the, both of them, uh, part of their uh, calling, part of the work that they were doing was teaching Hebrew to new immigrant soldiers. And in one of them, when they finished the three, three months of the Urban, uh, the commander of the base invited uh, Eti and I to, to participate in the ceremony. In that ceremony, there were about 140 soldiers that, were, that have finished their, uh, their Hebrew course and they were going on to various uh, units to serve. And those soldiers were from 43 different countries who came to Israel from all over the world. And so we see how the restoration of the language and the land is happening. So in conclusion, when we look at the hand of God in restoring the Hebrew language, making it a common language of the people, and the restoration of the land of Israel, we can see that these are the means used by God to restore the people of Israel to himself. The restoration of the two L's, the language and the land, was paved the way 
for the restoration of the people. And the church in Israel today is expanding and making small but very important impact on the society. And that and the future of Israel will be the subject of our third and the last seminar today. Thank you. <coughs> Maybe three to five minutes for Q and A, and then we'll then we'll go to the talk. So if there's pressing questions. Messiah 
that it can have a significant uh, influence on the nations because one day they would say that you know the Jewish people for 2,000 years they rejected the Messiah they, uh, they were cursed they were whatever they rejected the Messiah and see now the Jewish people are coming back to the, the Messiah and that would be something that we would be once again fulfilling our role as the light to the Gentiles and I get goosebumps. <laughs> yes? How common is it for the Jews who are not in Israel to uh, learn modern Hebrew? Um, relatively uncommon, but it's interesting because I think that most Jews who live outside of Israel, even, even though they are secular, they would still attend the synagogue or they would go to the Jewish uh, community centers. And part of it is because even though they live outside of Israel, they still wish for the kids uh, to marry a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl. And so they try to maintain their, their community. And I say they are even a little bit more <coughs> religious. You know, if they would have been in Israel, they probably would not have attended the synagogue. But outside of Israel, in order to maintain their identity, they find the synagogue and the community center as a means of maintaining the community. It's interesting that uh, socialists, uh, I mean, the, the, some of the social studies have shown that the Jewish person that marries a Gentile, within a two or three generation, they lose their Jewish identity. So that's a kind of alarming for, for some of them. As I've often said, many Jewish people in the US they live their life as life, liberty, and the pursuit of Jewishness. Um, but you have pointed out very clearly that it is language, land, and life in Messiah. And that's what we want here in the US for our Jewish neighbors and friends. Life, liberty, and life in Jesus. And, under one nation. Under one nation. <laughs> one shepherd. One Christ. Jay, can I ask you, brother, to pray for our food, for our lunch? Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to host David. Thank you for his clear teaching. And we pray that you would bless the food, the hands that made it, bless our fellowship with each other. We pray that you have 